I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20 contains some of the most famous words of Scripture, the Ten Commandments. We'll read all of the Ten Commandments, though we'll only um, take a look at the first two verses. I thought we'd get through three, but that proved to be too much in the first service, so we'll just take it at two. Exodus chapter 20, we'll read verse 1 through 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. These are the Ten Commandments. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which is living and active. We pray, Father, that having read your word and now taking the time to consider it, that you would give us insight, understanding, and acceptance of it. And Father, that we would not leave the same as we have come in, would be our constant prayer to you, but you would use your word to transform us more and more into the image of your Son. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. For those who minister in the Bible Belt, there's a saying, it probably extends beyond that area of the country, but you're familiar with the Bible Belt, right? It's that portion of uh, the United States that has a very strong kind of Christian culture to it. There is a proliferation of uh, churches and just kind of this uh, uh, Christianness that kind of exists in those areas. Um, If you minister in those parts of the country, there's there's this saying that kind of has come up as a bit of a mantra, mantra. To minister to people there, you have to get them lost before you can get them saved. 
And that simply means that because there's such a kind of shroud of a Christian culture, everybody thinks that they're a, they are a Christian. Everybody is a bit more extensive than the reality, but many people think that they're a Christian. And so for people to really minister to people there, they have to often help them see, no, that's actually not the case, and unveil to them the truth about their soul. When you live in a Christian culture, there is a danger that because you have the superficial or veneer of Christianity, you think that by default you are a Christian. So, for example, in that part of the country, if you did a survey and you asked people, what religion are you, most people would say, well, I'm a Christian. And you ask them, well, why are you a Christian? And they'd say, well, because I'm not a Buddhist or a Hindu or an atheist or an agnostic. And that kind of sums up why they think that they're a Christian, because they're none of those other things, and so they are a Christian. They may go to church on Christmas and Easter. We have a name for that type of a person. That's a nominal Christian. That is a Christian in name only. Not to say that making it to church every Sunday defines you as a Christian or makes you a Christian. But when you have just this cultural Christianity around you, but no heart to it, you're not actually a believer in Christ, and you show that the priority of your relationship to God is very low on your level of priorities. Custom is not enough. I bring this up because while we're definitely not in the Bible Belt of the United States, Those who come to church on a weekly basis know something of a Christian culture. Within the church and within kind of the broader fellowship of Christians, there does exist a kind of culture, a kind of lingo, a kind of atmosphere, a kind of dress, a kind of demeanor that can envelop us. And when you become a part of that kind of culture... You can think that because you share something of that culture, you belong to the essence of what that culture is. So in other words, because you might have some of the externals of Christianity, you think of yourself as a Christian and therefore a beneficiary of what Christianity offers, namely forgiveness of sins and eternal life and an heir of the kingdom of God. But Sometimes people sneak into The community of God's people sit among them, look like them, talk like them, but are not really among them. I don't have, by the way, anyone in particular in mind here as I say this. (laughs) But I would be foolish if I didn't think that it were at least a possibility And you would be foolish if you at least didn't think of it as a possibility. That you can have the culture of Christianity, but not have the Christ of Christianity. And so one of the questions to ask is, well, what will find them out? What will expose them? And that's not to say that we're looking to find who that is and bring them to open shame. It's more of a pastoral question in my mind, how 
Can it happen that somebody who thinks that they have Christ but doesn't really, how do you get them to understand they don't really have Christ? Because what greater danger is there than to think you're safe when in reality you're facing the flames of hell? We don't want anyone in that predicament. So anyone who's blind, we want them to understand that they are blind in order that they might receive sight. What will help them? Something needs to touch their heart so that they know that the God that they say they possess is not really anything like what they had originally thought. And the Christian culture is not enough if you don't possess the heart beat of what's supposed to drive it. So something needs to be addressed. One of the tools that God has given us to address that kind of situation are the very commandments that we have just read in His Word. When you take a prolonged and careful look at the law of God and you look at it as if you're looking in a mirror and allow it to evaluate your heart and reveal to you the God who has given that law and all of His holiness and all of His perfection and all of His righteous requirements to you, you may find very quickly that you do not measure up to what you thought you had once had in just a cultural show of things. So there may be nothing better than a slow and thoughtful move through the treasure of these Ten Commandments because these laws help us understand God's perfect standard. And as we consider it, your heart may be exposed having failed to meet it. I have all confidence that the Word of God is living and active, that it is sharper than any double-edged sword, and when it is read or when it is preached accurately, it is God's message communicated to those who are hearing it. And I have the expectation that when it is communicated, when it is read or preached, that God is at work through His Word And so as we spend time in the Ten Commandments, I would expect that some of you may be shaken up by what we see in this text. I expect some of you may feel, in a sense, the tremors of Mount Sinai, and your heart may tremble as well. You may find yourself like Isaiah, who went into the presence of God and found himself quickly empty of any righteousness that would allow him to stay there. And he ended up calling out, Woe is me, I am undone, I am a man of unclean lips. Some of you may experience that as you look at the law of God. Others may be comforted knowing that the grace of Jesus Christ is sufficient for you, knowing that he really died and rose again for you, knowing that he really offers you his own righteousness, that he spilled his blood after living the perfect life to complete all righteousness, and that he's offered to you. And so as you look at the law, you don't find condemnation. You actually find the grace of Jesus Christ, and you find instructions for God how, from God how you, he wants you to live in obedience to Christ. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and know that God is holy will find satisfaction. Perhaps at the outset of this, you could say it like this. If you were personally to strip away from yourself 
all the externals of your Christianity, all of the mannerisms, all the lingo, all the dress, all of the service that's rendered, all of the giving, all of those kind of external practices, if you were to take them away and remove the shell of all of the outside of your Christian life, what would be found underneath? What would be remaining? What is the heartbeat of your life? What is the infrastructure that holds up the superstructure of your actions? What kind of heart do you have that pumps the blood of your life? If we could take an x-ray on your motivations and look at the results, what would we find? What compels you? What drives you? could simply ask it this way. At the bottom of it all, do you love God, do you love the God who rescued you? Is that what drives all of the externals? Do you love the God who rescued you in an exclusive way that makes all other loves almost look like their hates because of your surpassing love for the God who has delivered you? If you feel your heart withered or devoid of love for God, but your external life full of what looks like love to Him, need to remember this, that the only person who can really, truly, sincerely, and completely love God is the person who has first been loved by God. You cannot, on your own, whip yourself up into a frenzy of God with affection and devotion and love for Him. You cannot do it on your own. The only person who really loves God is the one who has tasted of His love for you. You cannot get that backwards. If you do, then you'll never really know what love for God is. Because it is God who first loves us. That's what we just sang about, isn't it? The whole reason that we love is because He first loved us in Christ. It is that love of God that sought us out, that grabbed us, that saved us, that gave His Son for us, that rescues us from the pit of our sin, that transforms us, completes us, makes us a new person in Christ. And because we taste of His love, we know what love is, and we want to respond in love to Him for all the love that He's poured out to us. And now we have an example of what love for others looks like because we've received that love from God. So as we walk through these commandments and we try to strip away some of the externals of our life and let us see what the heartbeat of our life is, I hope that you do not leave indifferent to our study of the Ten Commandments. That would be the worst possible response, indifference. Rather, you be convicted I'd rather you be brought to nothing. Or I'd rather you be hopeful or joyful in Christ and trusting Him alone for your righteousness. That would be much better. So for today, as we just spend a few moments looking at the beginning of the Ten Commandments and in a sense a little bit of a survey 
of them on the whole. I want to give a bit of an introduction to them that leads us to have our hearts evaluated. We'll spend some time getting a kind of a top-level view, and we'll take a look at verses 1 and 2. As we go through this, keep in mind what these are intended to accomplish in your life. This moment in Israel's history after they've been delivered out of Egypt is, of course, this momentous moment. It's a, it's a time in the history of the world that has completely transformed the world, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. It's a unique event. It's an event that is so profoundly influential that it continues to influence the rest of the Bible, influence the world, influence us individually. This event of the giving of the Ten Commandments happens at Mount Sinai. It's the location that God has descended. He's descended in fire and in smoke and great thunders, earthquakes, and he speaks to the people these commandments. So as we look at this event, we'll kind of break it down into different ways to think about what this event is in the very giving of the commandments. First of all, it's a spoken event. It is a spoken event. Chapter 20, verse 1 simply says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I don't think it should ever be lost on us that God speaks. We may wish at times that God would kind of set up some sort of cable transfer between us and him where he could just instantly download to us all the information that we need in order to live. Wouldn't that be nice that all of a sudden, just in kind of an epiphany, we are all instantaneously have all of the information and knowledge that we would desire to know how to live this life and knowledge about God and love for him. We like that mechanism, and some of us kind of live from supposed epiphany to epiphany, just wanting some sort of burst of illumination suddenly. Well, God does communicate to us, and he does transfer information, but it's through a much more normal mechanism than an instantaneous download. The living God speaks, and that's the way that he communicates to us his thoughts, his ideas. Through speech, now we have it in his written word. We don't hear him audibly, but nonetheless, we hear what he had said. Communicating through speech is the way that we get to know anyone. That's the way we work. If you want to get to know anyone, you have to listen to what they say. You can't just look at them. You have to listen to them in order to know what this person is, what they're thinking, what they're like, what they're about. But when speech happens, and when you speak one to another, you know it takes work. When I do premarital counseling, one of the longest uh, times that we devote is to the topic of communication. Because couples often think that they communicate well because they say everything that they want to say and so they think communication is finished. Anyone who's been in any kind of relationship knows that's not how it works. Just take a marriage, for example. The wife says to the husband, honey, I'd like you to take out the garbage. And the husband thinks and interprets that as, 
She wants me to take out the garbage after I do everything that I want to do and whenever I feel like doing it. And the wife is thinking when she says, honey, take out the garbage now. And communication hasn't happened until the understanding of what is meant has been transferred from one party to another. So when God speaks, instead of just instantaneously downloading information to us, it requires that we think about what he says. We understand what he means, what he's communicating to us, that we receive all that he has for us. The author of the first psalm says that the man who is blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord And on his law, he meditates day and night. Wives, wouldn't you love it if your husband meditated on your words day and night? When the Lord speaks, he expects us to hear. And when we hear, we do more than just having it go in one ear and out the other. We ponder, we think, we wonder, what does he mean? What is he saying? And so God is the one who speaks this whole event. As a matter of fact, the way that the Ten Commandments are described in Scripture is not so much the Ten Commandments, they're described as the Ten Words. That's in Exodus 34, 28, and in Deuteronomy 4, 13. The way it's translated is the Ten Commandments, but the language that's used is quite literally the ten words. That's where we get the title Decalogue from. Deca, ten, log from logos, word, ten words. God speaks this event. It is a spoken event. He speaks these words, and of course the people of Israel are surrounding the mountain there, and they are listening, and they hear, and they hear it so well that as afterwards they say, do not let God speak to us anymore. In chapter 20, verse 19, it's a spoken event. God speaks. It's also a unique event. It's a unique event. While there are many other times in the Bible that we see God speaking, and in fact, the whole Bible is described as Scripture, which is breathed out by God, so it's all God speaking, and so we call it all His Word. There's something unique about this event at Mount Sinai, and when I say unique, I mean foundational. It's foundational. This is the cornerstone of the structure of the law. There are different genres in the Bible. There's the genre of narrative that's telling stories and events that happen. There's the genre of uh, poetry, that's Psalms. There's the genre of wisdom literature, that's Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job. There's the genre of prophecy or prophets, that's all of those long books towards the end of the Old Testament. There's the genre of gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's the genre of New Testament history, that's Acts. Genre of epistles, that's Romans and First and Second Corinthians and the rest of the letters of Paul and Peter and John. And then there's the genre of the apocalypse, which is revelation. And so there's all these different kind of different literatures within Scripture. But one of the literatures that we find and that we're coming into in Exodus is the literature of legal code. If you were to 
look up the legal code of New York State, you could read a lot of boring rules for quite some time. The Bible has legal code in it. I'm not saying it's boring, but it's full of statutes, of laws, of precepts, of regulations. And that's what we come on to here in Genesis chapter 20. And really, Genesis 20 kicks off that whole legal code of God because you go through the rest of Exodus, into Leviticus, most of Numbers, and Deuteronomy is reiteration of most of the legal code. And so you've got a huge chunk of the Bible just as legal code. At the front door of it all are the Ten Commandments. This event at Mount Sinai, God speaking. And so this functions for us as the the cornerstone of God's law. The rest of the Old Testament, as you go through it, emphasizes what is going to happen in Exodus through Deuteronomy. The book of Joshua, Joshua is charged by God, do not turn from the right hand or from the left, referring to the law of Moses That has been commanded to you. Judges recounts the disobedience of the Israelites to the law of God. 1 Samuel through 2 Chronicles shows the up and down life of Israel in relationship to the law of God. Ezra and Nehemiah tries to establish the return of the people to the law of God. The prophets are calling Israel back to the law of God. Psalms and Proverbs shows the life of someone who's trying to live out the law of God. So pretty much the whole rest of the Old Testament is anchored by the law, and the law is anchored in the Ten Commandments. And so this is a unique event that is so influential on the rest of the Old Testament. It's a spoken event, it's a unique event, it's also a personal event. It's a personal event. When it says in verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You see just by the language of it that it's personal. I, you. When the Lord speaks and introduces these commandments, he doesn't so much introduce himself. They already know him as Yahweh, but he says, I am the Lord with the emphasis on your God. This Yahweh is your God. And he sets this up at the start of these commandments to understand that this whole thing is in a sense relational, it's personal. They're understanding who their God is and what he expects of them. It's a personal event. As Israel receives these laws, they're really being inaugurated as a nation. They're receiving their constitution. We have a constitution in the United States. You've probably been forced to read it at some point. And you know how it begins. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. That constitution preamble is, in a sense, personal. It uses the language of we and our, but notice it's a governance 
of the people and by the people. It is a personal in the sense that the people are organizing a government that will govern themselves. That's not the kind of personal nature of the Constitution that Israel is being given because it is God who's speaking and God is saying, I am the Lord your God. God is setting up a kingdom, a theocracy where he is king. Israel is not going to live under a constitutional republic where they vote for elective representatives. They have their king who is Yahweh and he is going to rule with absolute authority. And he gives them this law to show them how they are to live under his authority, but lest they think that this is some sort of invader to them, some sort of oppressor, he reminds them, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Israel would not exist except for God speaking his word and keeping his word in fulfillment to the Israelites. And they experienced the mighty hand of God who rescued them from slavery. And now they're identified as a delivered people. They're delivered. They're not put into some sort of new oppressive slavery. He's not brought them out into some harsh new circumstances. He tells them in chapter 19, verse 4, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. He goes on and says, You will be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The people of Israel have to come to know that their God, their king, is bringing them into this relationship. And they need to now live as a people who have this God as their God. And as such, they need to reflect his holiness in their lives, of who they belong to of who their God is. They're going to look distinct from every other nation around them because Yahweh is their God, Yahweh and none other. It's a personal event in that it's a personal relationship between God and his people. It's also a, an event that looks to the future. It's an event that looks to the future. There's a... Um, a difference between a command and a commandment. If you've thought about that at all, a command is kind of like a, a single-use instruction. Um, for example, a, a parent could tell their child um, that you have to be back by 8 o'clock tonight because we have to get to Aunt Jenny's by 8.30. That's a single-use command. It's only in force for that one evening while the parent's expecting their child back for that specific event. A commandment is more like your curfew is 10 p.m. And the parent means until you're 45 years old. <laughs> That's a commandment that endures for perpetuity. It's not a single-use thing. It's something that the child has to live under as long as they're under the authority of the parent, not a one and done, but a perpetual mark of their relationship with their parent. These Ten Commandments are a perpetual mark 
of the way Israel is to relate to their God. This is perhaps just self-evident, but could be seen in the fourth commandment, which is remember the Sabbath day. Tells them you can work for six days, but on the seventh you need to keep it holy to the Lord. And it's not as though an Israelite could think, well, I kept the Sabbath this week, but I don't need to keep it next week. It's a perpetual command. It's a persistent one. And that's the case with all of the commands. They're all required of them for all time. And that's what I mean by it's an event that looks to the future. Each subsequent generation will be under this requirement. And each individual life will be under it for the perpetuity of their life. So it's an event that looks to the future. It's also an individualized event. It's an individualized event, which is kind of an odd way to think about it to some degree because this is a very corporate setting. All of Israel has been assembled to be there in front of the Lord God. They are all to hear this all at the same time, and all of Israel will, in chapter 24, say, all this we will do at a corporate time. But interestingly, as these commands are given, they're individualized. The you, in verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me, is singular. You may already be aware of this, but when the Bible is written in Hebrew, there were uh, different ways that you could say you. There's the you of plurality, meaning a whole group of yous, or there's the singular you referring to an individual. The way that this is reflected in English is really hard to distinguish unless you're from the South where people in the South say y'all. But if generally speaking, you just say you, and sometimes it refers to an individual, sometimes it refers to a whole group of people, depending on the context. When this is written, the Ten Commandments, it's an individual you. It's not y'all shall have no other gods before me. It's you. And so as Israel hears this as a nation... Each individual is hearing it particularized to them so that there is no one exempt from the requirements of this. Yes, the whole nation needs to keep this, but the whole nation is composed of the individuals that need to keep the individual commands. This is obvious in the fact that the fifth commandment is honor your father and mother. It's not that Each person needs to honor everybody's father and mother. It's individual. Honor your father and mother. So each pair of ears that's hearing that day would have to leave with the unmistakable experience and knowing that the living God expected them to keep each one of these commandments for the rest of their life. The you is singular for all the commandments But quite tenderly, so is verse 2 where it says, I am the Lord your God. The commandments are particularized, but so is the relationship. So the Israelites could think, not only do they need to keep it individually, but they have God as their God individually. It's an individualized event. It's also an event that forbids or prohibits. The very nature of these commandments 
is instructive to us, you notice just how negative it is. Look just through this in verse 3, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Second is you shall not make for yourself a carved image. The third, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The fourth is positive, remember the Sabbath day, so is the fifth, honor your father and mother. But the sixth, you shall not murder. The seventh, you shall not commit adultery. The eighth, you shall not steal. The ninth, you shall not bear false witness. The tenth, you shall not covet. They're negative. And you hear that and you think, God's just a killjoy. This tells me all the things I can't do. It's often the way people think. The very first commandment given to man was negative. You shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And often people come to this kind of you shall nots and think God's just a spoil sport out to take all my fun away, telling me all the things that I can't do. Like a parent telling you, don't touch this, don't touch that, don't do that, don't say that, don't go there. It just makes some people, God, look joyless. God is perceived as withholding. It's keeping us back. But you think that way when you think primarily that he's keeping you back from all of the sensual indulgence that you would like to go after with your flesh. This is primarily why we think of God as a spoil sport. Because there are all these things that in our flesh we want to do, and he says no to. We have to observe a few things, however. Notice that our very own laws that we live under are primarily negative, primarily prohibitions. There's a speed limit. You look at that and you think, how dare they limit me? How dare you tell me what I can and can't do? How dare you put a restriction on my life? The very own laws are primarily negative. In order to maintain some sort of societal order, you need to have prohibitions on what can't be done. Second, also notice that the temptation by the serpent in the garden to... Eve was an accusation against the character of God that he was withholding something. Did God really say that you can't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Of any tree of the garden? Did God really say that? He's indicating that God is withholding something good that would be there for Eve and for Adam. He's accusing him of a character that is less than exemplary. But do you remember what God actually said? You may eat of any of the trees of the garden, except for this one tree. That's what he actually said. And why does God say you may not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Why did he say that? Because in the day that you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. God isn't withholding from us. He's trying to keep us from dying. And you can't enjoy anything when you're dead. So, God's not withholding. 
He's wise and He's good in what He has for us. But there's something else to consider that as you look at these commandments and their negative, in their statements, a common interpretive principle that has been reliable throughout really the history of the church is that while there's something prohibited, the positive alternative is assumed to be good. Let me explain what I mean by that. Take, for example, adultery. God says you shall not commit adultery. You cannot think that a marriage that has two people have, who have never committed adultery is therefore a good marriage. Just because the two people in a marriage have not committed adultery does not, by necessity, make it a good marriage. I'm sure you realize that. There have been plenty of marriages that have never been infiltrated by that horror of adultery, but it's still an awful marriage. No husband should say, well, I've never committed adultery, so I'm a great husband. No human being should ever say, well, I never murdered anybody, so I'm a great human being. When the prohibition is given, the alternate good is assumed. What makes a good husband? Not just don't commit adultery, but love your wife. What makes a good human being? Not just not killing the person next to you, but loving your neighbor as yourself. You haven't really lived a godly life if you've only never killed somebody. Jesus helps us with this principle when he's asked in Matthew 22, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? Do you remember Jesus' answer? He doesn't respond from the Ten Commandments. He doesn't say, you shall not commit adultery. He says the great commandment is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus doesn't cite one of the Ten Commandments. He rather quotes from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, but he gives a positive law. And so as you read the Ten Commandments, it's not just negative. The positive alternative is assumed as being good and right and incumbent upon the people who are under this law. So then why is it so negative? Why is it put this way? I think the negativity of the Ten Commandments is quite insightful. Doesn't the negativity of it, the prohibitions, doesn't it show the wicked inclination of our hearts that we have to be told, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not make a graven image? Why do we have to do that? Because our inherent Hearts want to do those things. And so we have to be prohibited from doing them by the law of God. We know our world is so corrupt, so evil, 
because of the presence of wickedness in all of our hearts. And so there's things that exist like human trafficking, like murder, like adultery. There are smaller, seemingly smaller crimes just between neighbors as there's arguments over fence lines. And you scale that up to nations as they argue over war over boundaries. We need laws to govern our wickedness. And so we need these prohibitions, and the prohibitions reveal the depth of wickedness in our very heart. Well, again, I had mentioned that I intended to get into the first commandment, but we'll leave it at that for today. There's enough instruction in these Ten Commandments to really last us a lifetime. And I offer them to you for personal consideration to take time and reflect upon what's your relationship to these laws. Not calling you to live under them. I'm just calling you to use them as a mirror to reflect your life, to see where you stand in comparison to the righteous standards of God. And as you consider that, try to strip away all of the shell of Christianity and see what kind of heart really beats inside you. The very first command is, you shall have no gods before me. And that is basically taken as, you need to be completely devoted to God in love for him. Is that the case? Or have you allowed a shell of Christianity to rise up around inside you? Is there wonderful words? Take the time to consider them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word All of it is profitable to us, and we ask that you would use your scripture to teach and instruct us, to reveal what's in our hearts. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who has come to rescue us from the condemnation that we deserve under your law. Lord, help us to live in him and to follow him wholeheartedly. And Father, I'd ask that as a church, you'd help us through this portion of Scripture to rightly understand it, to rightly apply it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.